For as long as I can remember, since childhood even, when I've fallen in love with a book, I've wanted to sit down and talk with the author. Now, I'm doing just that. Welcome to Words with Writers. I'm your host, Jenny L. Weitrip. I'm an award-winning, best-selling author, and I'm talking to authors about the writing craft, the writing life, and the books you love. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I am excited to welcome Sarah Sundin to the podcast today. Sarah is uh, a historical fiction writer, historical romance, and she is also a friend. We have become uh, friends and work colleagues uh, over the last couple of years, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, I just want to introduce Sarah and um, share some of the highlights of your career so far. Uh, Sarah Sendon is the best-selling author of several popular World War II series, including Sunrise at Normandy, Waves of Freedom, Wings of the Nightingale, and Wings of Glory. Her novels have received starred reviews from Booklist, Library Journal, and Publishers Weekly. The Sky Above Us received the Carol Award. Her best-selling The Sea Before Us received the FHL Reader's Choice Award. And both Through Waters Deep and Wind Tides Turn were named on Booklist 101 Best Romance Novels of the Last 10 Years. So I think I counted... 14 novels and one novella. Is that correct? Almost 13. 13. Okay. I, I don't really do that. So. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> so, your newest novel, When Twilight Breaks, is your first full length standalone. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. All my other books have been in series, three book series. So, it's, it was a different thing to write a standalone novel. I almost wondered if, as I was reading, uh, it's just such an incredible story. And, um, well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that question. I was boggled. My mind was absolutely boggled from a writer's perspective. Um, the way that you were able to weave in the historical details accurate historical events into the plot of this story seamlessly was just incredible to me. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I want to share a couple of the reviews that you have received, early reviews for When Twilight (laughs) Breaks. Uh, book list starred review, and they said, Sendin's novels set the gold standard for hyster- historical war romance, and When Twilight Breaks is arguably her most brilliant and important work to date. Library Journal starred review, accolades from Publishers Weekly, uh, that must feel amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, overwhelming and amazing, and I'm, you know, yeah, now I'm hoping people lives up to that reputation when people actually read it. Well, from an early reader's perspective, I'd say they hit it right, hit the nail on the head. It is just, um, it hooked me from the very beginning. So share a little bit about the plot and the inspiration behind the story. Well, the plot was fun. Um, I'll actually start with the inspiration because 
um, we went to Ellis Island a few years ago and put family names into the computer to see if we could find anything about people who'd come when they come over from Europe. But it turned out they come out be- come to America before Ellis Island opened. But I found my grandfather's name from when he returned to America, from Hamburg, Germany, from his junior year abroad, and it was 1936. And I, I looked at that and go, I, I knew he'd studied in Germany as a college student, but I looked at it and go, he was there in Hitler's Germany, in Nazi Germany. I thought, wow. And unfortunately, he passed away even before I was born, so I never met him. But my mind was like, wow, what would it be like to be an American student in Nazi Germany? Um, you know, to be there, but you also observing. And so this story started blossoming and so I now I have a graduate student, so he's a little, you know, a little older, more mature than my father was at the time. And I have an American foreign correspondent. And so they're both there observing, watching, um, affected by all the events around them, watching it affect the people they know, the Germans they know on both sides, and um, really being able to, to, to see it almost from an outsider's perspective, but also still be right in the middle of it. And of, of course, you know, of course, my novelist brain goes into high gear, like, well, you know, Nazi Germany wasn't exactly a safe place to be. How could they get themselves in trouble? And it wasn't too tar to get them in trouble. <laughs> so, and of course, that makes a novel. So you want your characters to get in trouble. So I put them in trouble. My grandfather actually had to, I'm, obviously, he did not get in trouble with the Gestapo or anything like that. So <laughs> he, he came home safely, no problems. But um, it, was, it was fun to let my little writer's brain do the what ifs. Absolutely. That's, well, what's so fascinating to me um, about the way it's written and about what you've done with this story is some of those things could have happened. And your research seems to inform the plot. And yet the plot is so solid on its own, but oftentimes in historical fiction, it's, it seems as though the history comes through in the setting mostly, and obviously some of the circumstances, but really the timeline of this novel in Nazi Germany um, really informed the plot or a lot of the plot, it seemed like. And you Uh, wove that together seamlessly. Yeah, it's a lot of editing because I love research. Um, and uh, there's so much fascinating stuff I learned while researching this. And of course, I want to get it all in there because I want my readers to experience it too. And I just have to chop, 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 because it's like, it doesn't fit the story. It doesn't fit the story. No, it's, yes, it's interesting, but no, it's not necessary. And so cutting, 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 and, um, and really asking myself, does, and I have to, I say this to myself over and over and over again, does the reader need to know this information to understand this story. Mm. And it's always the reader, the need to understand the story. I mean, it, those, all those four pieces have to go together. It's not like, what do I feel like want to convey? But, <laughs> and not even like, what should the reader know about this time era? That's, that's not relevant. It's only what is relevant so they can understand what's going on in the story. So I have to keep asking myself and removing things that don't fit. And sometimes I have to add other things in. My editors will read through and like, I, why are they doing this? Does it make any sense? 
quick world us because of this law of such and such. Oh, yeah, I didn't explain that. <laughs> so, so, so sometimes I have to add it back in because you become very familiar. You know, this is my 13th World War II era novel. So the danger is that I understand the World War II era very deeply. And so a lot of it makes sense to me. And I have to remind myself a lot of the, I remember my very first time I went to my writer's group and it was my very first novel, my very first World War II novel. And I mentioned um, the hero says something about um, fighting the Axis powers. And my, one of the ladies in my group says, what are the Axis? I'm like, oh, okay. I thought everybody learned that in high school history, but, and this is a very smart woman. Like, oh, we forget these things. So, so sometimes I have to define what for me is a really natural thing to know and define those terms, reminding myself, it's, it's not that the readers aren't smart, they're very smart, but we forget. And sometimes it's not, if you, if you love Civil War and you don't know World War II, you're not going to understand that thing. So I have to be careful to explain enough, but not to over-explain because I have other readers who are, you know, major World War II buffs. And if I, you know, so I have to always balance between those. So you've talked about two things that for writers are very important for us Mm -hmm. to remember. One we call the curse of knowledge Mm -hmm. that we, we know the story, we know the plot, we know what's happened. And so sometimes we forget to include the reader in that and, (laughs) or we give them, we become self-indulgent and give more than (laughs) Yes. they need. Yes. Uh, but you also talked about the importance of your writing for the reader. Yes. And we need to remember that always because we do get involved in our own stories and research and enjoy that aspect of it. So tell me a little, love, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's why I love having critique partners. Yes. typically have two critique partners who know, who aren't interested in World War II. And they read my books, but you know that, that isn't something they read about. They don't watch the documentaries. So if they can understand what's going on, my reader can understand what's going on. So I have them. And, they, you know, these are multi-published authors. So, that, you know, they aren't, you know, they're very well-educated people, but that's not their thing. So if I can explain it well to them, that's good. And I also have somebody who, um, one of my critique partners only reads um, a whole act at a time. So I give her act one and then I'll give her act two and then I'll give her act three. And so she can see b- the bigger picture. Like, Oh, you, I don't understand why the resistance does this and that, or why, you know, why the Nazis do that and that because so she gets a more of a big picture aspect of it. So I can see where I'm not explaining well. So I, I those are two things I make sure I do with my, you know, have my critique partners. For, so. That's great. That's great. It's uh, it's so valuable to find good critique partners, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, uh, especially for those aspiring historical fiction writers, tell us about your research process. I was, this was the mind, one of the many mind-boggling pieces of this book to me, um, the snippets of the German language that you used and the detail that was so rich and makes this story so authentic and um, just sort of layered. So how do you, what's your process for research? Well, um, two things. Um, First of all, I start general and work down to the specific. So I, okay, I brought my books out with me. 
Um, <laughs> I read this big honking book, The Third Reich in Power. But wow. okay, so for those who are just listening, it's about the size of four books. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. It's, it's huge. over a thousand. It's almost a thousand pages. It's huge. Wow. But so this is you know a good book about Nazi Germany during the 1930s. So th- this is actually part of a three book series where he has one where it's Hitler's rise to power, and then he has another one just during the war. So this is the one that's just the 30s, which is the setting of my story. But anyway, um, so he describes German society in great detail in all the different areas from, um, you know, the military to social to, um, you know, how they treat the Jews to, to um, culture. I mean, all these different parts. So it really helped me. So anyways, I, this is a general book. It is about Nazi Germany. <laughs> and I let the story guide me into more specifics. And um, so, for example, my heroine is a foreign correspondent. So I read um, um, William Shirer's Berlin Diary. He was a foreign course, an American force correspondent in Germany in the late 1930s, and he kept a diary. So he, yeah, incredible. It was his bestseller in the early 1940s. But um, and he's just a very engaging writer too. So, but he, you know, he talks about all the little things and a lot of the stories, the things that Evelyn gets herself in trouble are things that happen to real foreign correspondents where um, their, their informants would get captured and executed, um, where um, they were, some of them were sheltering Jews. Um, some of them, you know, they were meeting in um, clandestine areas and passing notes. So a lot of things that Evelyn does are things that American force correspondents did and how they had to um, transmit their stories because the, the Germans only wanted very positive information coming out and how they could get kicked out of the country. So I, and this isn't the only one I read, but it's an example, and it's the best example. And then because my characters are Americans, they're not Germans, so I read a bunch of books about um, Americans living in Germany at the time, or visiting Germany. This one's called Hitlerland, American Eyewitnesses to the Nazi Rise of Power. So there are books like this that were, um, and it showed the dichotomy of how some Americans went to Nazi Germany and saw low unemployment. This is during the Great Depression. I mean, America had 25 to 33% unemployment at the time. Germany had zero. So they were building buildings and bridges and people were working. People were happy. They were well-fed. And there was order in the street. Now it was order at a price, but there was order in the street. So a lot of Americans came over and said, we've got riots back home. We've got soup lines. Grandpa, does, you know, no one has jobs. And they come to Germany, it's all shining and prosperous. So a lot of Americans saw, he's doing something right. What can we do? That's like that. And other Americans came and saw the depression, the, the oppression. They saw um, the what it was like to live under a police state. You know, that order, as I said, came at a price. You were looking over your shoulder. Um, you know, is the grocer overhearing me grumble about Hitler? And I'm going to get sent to a concentration camp. So there's that terror aspect. And some Americans were very focused on that. And very interesting, I found that um, they said that most Americans came in with preset notions that it was going to be one way or the other, and that it re- their experiences there reinforced their views and made them stronger. And it was like, it was so much like America today. It was kind of, it was very spooky. So, you know, there's some examples. And then because it, my grandfather was a professor of German, and I, this is his textbook, the one he wrote. And it was like, how neat. Wow. Yeah. So, um, 
So some of the things that he, that Peter in the story does to explain how, how to, to use your tongue, your lips, those are in this book because that was something my grandfather and his, um, his colleague worked on in their research. And, you know, because I took German in college, um, but it's been a while and I, I, I refreshed it. We spent the summer in Germany in 2007, long story, great, great, amazing experience. So I refreshed it then, but that's been 13, 14 years <laughs> So it was really, so I used my grandpa's book to refresh my German. So, so, you know, that's an example. Um, but uh, other big hint, you know, start. So my two big hints with historical research are start general and go specific and, and follow the story. Um, I'm often getting people sh- sending me books. Hey, you should read this. It's a great book about world war II. It's like, yes, but it's not for my story. It's about um, the Marines on Iwo Jima. Like uh, that would be a great story, but that's not what my novel is about. So I have, to, I have to be very careful with my research time because I have to read so much that I need to be very careful. Now, rabbit trails have their, have their purpose. Often a rabbit trail will inspire my next novel. So, um, so I don't ignore them completely, but I do have to be very careful and watch my time because I'm on deadline. Um, but then, so the general to specific, and the next thing is to read widely. Um, I can often, I'll often read People send me their World War II books for endorsement. Um, and I'm finding the level of research has really gone up for historical novelists, which I love. But every once in a while, I'll get one and I'll look at, I'll read the book and I go, I can tell which three books she read for her research. Wow. Because I recognize the facts from that book and that book and that book. And I, but there's so many errors in there. Um, and it's not necessarily errors of fact, but it's errors of perspective. Because the more widely you read, the more you understand it. Each novel, each nonfiction writer is going to come think, at things from different angles. So you need to get as many perspectives as you can to get a, a measure of what a bigger picture. And you need what I call the bird's eye view. So um, you know the, the the generals leading armies and the, and the kings and presidents doing their thing, and you know what the nations do, and that gives you the broad historical perspective of what was happening at that time. You need those. But you also need what I call the worm's eye view, where the the the, the diaries, the, um, the the um the personal experience stories, the oral histories, all those things that tell you um, what did it feel like, um, how what kind of food did you eat, um, what was the weather like, I, all those things that those things add color to your story and it makes it feel personal. So you need. All of that. I mean, all those little things like um, finding out that the Nazis banned wearing lipstick. I mean, it's, like, it's, a, it's a weird little thing, but but it, it makes a great historical de- detail. I mean, here's my character who loves wearing red, and she's got a red, red dress and rubies in her hair, and she can't wear red lipstick. So you know, just all those fun little, but it also, it's also the type, type of thing where a reader will read it and go, like, they banned lipstick? How stupid is that? And, but it shows a lot about how the Nazis viewed women and how they viewed culture. So just those, I look for those little details that add color. So anything like that, I love. It just amazing to me. One of the things that I noticed, well, two things. First of all, um, I want to read a very brief paragraph from the book. It fascinated me how much so we're recording this in early 2021 we are still in the midst of a pandemic we've just come through all of the racial unrest in 
2020, protests, riots. I mean, it was, it's, it was a year <laughs> like none we have experienced in our lifetime. And what I found fascinating about uh, reading When Twilight Breaks is how much, so much of it felt like some of what we have just gone through. And so your character, Peter Lang says, he's processing something. This is early in the story. He's processing something he has just witnessed on the street between the Gestapo, I believe, and an elderly man. And he says, and he's talking about from an American perspective, he's American. He is thinking, yes, free speech had its problems. Free speech could work people into a frenzy leading to violence. Lives and property needed to be protected. And that's sort of what we saw this last year. And it was interesting to me how we see history repeat itself. But that reminder of, yes, there's a cost for freedom. And yes, there's, you know, it, it isn't perfect, but, um, but so valuable. So just very interesting. And like you talked about the economic, um, you know, the depression and everything that was going on economically. And we have experienced uh, a lot of economic hardship in this last year. So just very interesting to read this at this juncture and see some of those parallels. And then yeah. also, um, and I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit, because we're reading this in retrospect, uh, and we know what happened in Nazi Germany, we know what happened with Hitler, that increases the tension in the story, which makes it that much more readable because we, we, we know that part of where it's going. But you were able to then weave in the tension from just the plot of the story, the romantic tension and, and all of that together. And I hadn't thought about how history itself can play into that tension for a writer. And you seem to really use that. Oh, it's, it's, it's lovely for me. Um, plotting is the most difficult part for me. You know, I love characters. I love dialogue. Um, I love the research. Um, for me, writing the plot is, is hard work. I call it like a, a SmackDown wrestling match. Like, and part of it is because I'm trying to fit it with the history. Cause I don't like, I don't break historical timelines. So I'm like, I'm going to move this event because it fits my story better. I, mm, I can't do that. So, um, but there's this, um, the beauty of historical fiction is that history comes with its own tension. So you can, you can add this stuff in like, well, there was this real event that happened. I don't have to make it up. Um, there was a, uh, you know, there was the Kristallnacht where, you know, there was this great, horrible wave of violence against the Jews and uh, being able to use that as a plot device um, while also illuminating the times. But it, it comes, I mean, history comes with its own built-in stuff. I mean, you could write a, a novel set in 2020 and wow, you've got great, you've got all sorts of interesting material to work with. Pandemics and riots and, <laughs> and <laughs> chaos. You know? Isn't that true? Yeah. So 50 years from now, there can be some amazing novels set in 2020. <laughs> not a long time. Most will be like, no, I'm not going yeah. to. We're not ready for them yet, but you're absolutely right. Well, you did a masterful job uh, with this book, and I think readers will just be enthralled. I learned so much. 
Uh, and so I'm just, um, I was very excited to have the opportunity to read it and read it early. And um, so you and I met at Mount Hermon at the Writers Conference, the Mount Hermon Writers Conference many years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have been on faculty for Writers Conferences. Uh, we are both serving West Coast Christian Writers, mm-hmm. um, a nonprofit that helps equip writers. And so we have learned a little bit about each other's writing process as we've gotten <laughs> to know each other. And we are, we approach writing a novel from polar opposites. <laughs> our, uh, our, our process could not be more different. You are a plotter. You are, you are a very intricate plotter. I'm the far end of the spectrum plotter. Um, yes. <laughs> and I am the other end of the spectrum seat of the pants writer. <laughs> And so your process has always fascinated me and I can see the necessity of it absolutely in what you're doing, but talk a little bit for the writers who are listening about how you plot a book and, and the difference, perhaps if this is uh, relevant, the difference between plotting a standalone novel and the series that you have written. Well, first of all, I want to clarify something. Um, even though for me, I can't, first of all, what you do is like magical, mysterious, and like, woo, how do you do? I have no idea how see the pants writers. I, it's like, uh, I, it's, it baffles me. Um, but um, what I do is not necessary for writing historical fiction. For me, I can't imagine writing historical fiction without an outline, but Uh, Melanie Dobson, who's one of my dear writing friends, and she not only writes incredible historical fictions, very well-researched, but she writes dual timeline, these tapestry of these two plots that are converging and are all intricately connected. I mean, I call them her books tapestries. They're so beautifully woven together. And she writes Seat of the Pants. And I look at her books and go, how is it? I would have charts showing how this this plot line has to be intersecting here and how I introduce this, this plot there and that outline point there, I would have this incredible, uh, she does it by the seat of the pants. So if you like historical fiction and you do not like outlines, it's okay. <laughs> good. That's and good I'm, for people to know. <laughs> you know. I'm a huge proponent of you have to write in the manner that suits your personality best. For me, the thought of going first, I'm also one of these people, if I go on a trip I have, you know, I have my maps and I have my itinerary and I know where we're sleeping each night. For me, if I were to leave the house and not know where I'm sleeping that night, I would be so anxious that I wouldn't be able to enjoy the journey. I'd only be thinking of where I'm going to sleep that night. So for me, writing a novel without an outline would be like that. I'd be so anxious about where I'm going to end up that I wouldn't be able to enjoy the journey. So for me, an outline is a sense of security. I know where I'm sleeping tonight. I know there's going to be plenty of food and there'll be a warm bed. And I can, I know I can relax and enjoy the journey and really love it. Other people, the pantsers, when they hear about outlines, they say, well, that's going to destroy all my creativity. I feel like I've already written this novel in the outline, so why write it? So you have to do what feeds your creativity. So for you, Jenny, and for you plotters, your pantsers, not having an outline feeds your creativity. For me, an outline feeds my creativity. So 
feed your creativity at all costs. So anyway, my process, <laughs> and I'm laughing because it, it, it's intricate, but I, I'm also, I'm a, I was a chemistry major. I'm a pharmacist. I have a, when you look at left brain, right brain, I'm right in the middle. I, so I'm much more analytical and detail oriented than most writers. Most writers are very right brained. So for me, charts and plots, and uh, I'm very visual too. I need to see it in front of me so I can make sense of it. So I have all sorts of stuff. And I've, you know, with my 13th novel, now I've got it down to a science. (laughs) I start off, I've got character, first character questionnaires that I fill out and get to know. This is Evelyn's. This is, it's, it's long, but I love it. I sit, I, and I, and people look at this and go, well, you could do this on the computer, you know? It's like, yeah, I know. But I, when I'm in the really brainstorming part of the story, I think best with, with my writing by hand. So I sit on the couch in a comfy position and I, and I write this out. And as I'm getting to know Evelyn, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, oh, you know, I could play with her name brand, Firebrand. Oh, yeah, that's fun. And, you know, so there are things that come out and, and I'll get scene ideas and I'll scribble this down on pieces of paper and set them aside. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. And then I'll, I'll, I'll write family histories on the back. Like, how did her family come to America? Because that's it's kind of part of her history. So I'll, I'll, it's a very dreamy part of the story for me. So I get to know my characters and then at that point, I have all these little bits and pieces of notes. I've got scene ideas and index cards. And then I start pulling, at this point, I'm getting a little bit starting to freak out. Like I've got, how am I going to pull this all together to a story? So I, then I go to my computer and I make a really rough draft. It's like, okay, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And then I put my historical information here because I've got to work around that. And it's really very sparse. But now I'm starting to say, okay, I have a story here. I know what's going to kind of happen in the first act. And, you know, so where are my major plot points going to be? And um, I really love story structure and getting to know story structure. And the more I understood that the, the hero's journey, um, the, it really improved my writing. So um, Christopher Vogler's The Writer's Journey is one of my favorite writing books. I recommend it all the time. Um, you know, even if you are a pantser, I like to tell my pantsing writing friends, um, look at story structure, look at the hero's journey in the editing process, write your book, get it out of your system. And now look through it and analyze the story structure and you're going to need to edit according to that. I do most of that before I write the book. I'm looking at, well, where are my major plot points going to be? Where, where's, where's the, the, where are the points of decision? And do I have enough tension in these, in certain areas? Um, and then I, I play with my scenes and then I, I get to the point and that this is the, this is the first draft. This is the second draft. I'm starting to actually get chapter ideas, but I'm looking at this and laughing because I see two whole chapters that I deleted at the beginning. Like I realized that was stupid. I just, I really didn't need that chapter. Uh, I thought it was going to be good. And I started writing the chapter. Like, oh, this is a bad chapter. Um, got rid of it. So even though I outline, I still play. Then I really develop it. This is my plot chart. And I, I, whoops, it's falling apart. I use it so much. But I I break it down by by scenes and by character. You know, the romance plot line, the action plot line, the emotional, spiritual journey plot line. I break it all down. And I go through chapter by chapter. And then I can write 
Then I, when I'm writing my rough draft, I'll look at this and, okay, this is what's going to happen in the, in the chapter. And then I write a real brief, like bullet point outline of what's going to happen in the chapter. <laughs> As I said, obsessive outliner, and then I can write it. So yeah, I have a really obsessive process, but um, people say the outline, but what if it changes? Like, yeah, it changes because I often find, okay, this is um, a copy of my plot chart from the third act, the last act. Um, I, you know, written this outline before I started writing the whole novel. And as I'm getting to know the characters and I'm thinking through and like, oh, wait, that's not going to work because this and this and that. And then I do more research and go, oh, man, that can't happen then. Um, and I, so I start. And then the last act is usually a lot of, re, you know, re, I mean, you see all these notes and circles and um, the book I'm writing right now, I actually had to throw out the whole last act, the plot chart and write a whole new one because um, there was so much that had changed. It was just too messy. I'm like, I'm just going to redo it. Wow. And so it's a, it's, it's still a process. There's still a, there's still a lot of discovery and surprises that happen. Um, so, and I'm learning to go with that. I think when my first couple of novels, like, well, but I want this to happen. Like, well, I'm a lot, I'm a lot more fluid now. I'll let it, I'll let the story carry me to a certain extent. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh yeah. I think I read somewhere and it may have been on an email loop that we're both on uh, that you don't necessarily work to a daily word count, you write scenes and chapters or so you plan out your writing time by I'm going to what? Yeah. I'm going to do a certain, well, it depends. I mean, if I'm, uh, that's the other reason I don't like the word count goals is because when I'm in the outlining phasing, I'm not writing any words. So it looks like I'm not, but I am, I'm, I'm re- writing my story. So I, you know, I break down my, I know how long it, by, you know, by this time, I know how long it takes me to do each portion of the process. And so I work back for my deadline and, well, I need, you know, this many months for this and this many months for that. And I go by week a week and say, well, you know, this week I'm going to write Evelyn's plot chart or character chart. And next week I'll write Peter's plot and character chart. And then I'll do my first next outline. So I'm still, I'm keeping myself on task, but it's not necessarily me word count. Um, also, and this is just, maybe it's just personal. Um, when I'm writing, when I say I have to write 2000 words a day, it feels like a chore and I'm like 1,797 words. Oh, I got to write 200. It feels like, you know, you're writing an essay in high school. Like, Oh, I've got to, like, this is a very, 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 very good book. I really, really, really loved it. So I find myself trying to fluff up my words to make my count, but I'm an overwriter. I have to cut about five to 10,000 words in my editing process. And so I don't want to do anything that encourages overwriting. I need to encourage write tight, writing tight. So I mean, I'll, I'll, my, my, right now I'm finishing my, I have literally one more chapter in the novel I'm writing right now. Yay. Wow. Today, of course, when I'm, I'm speeding toward the end, I, in the last act I find I write like a chapter a day. Um, but once again, it's already outlined. I know it's going to happen. So it's not like <laughs> I have to think, well, what's going to happen? I know it's going to happen. Um, but I usually say it takes me about two days to write a chapter when I'm in rough draft mode. So half a chapter a day. So if I write half a chapter that day, I've met my goal. Um, and if my chapter is only 1,500 words, yay, that means I'm going to be closer to my workout. <laughs> 
So sometimes I reward myself for writing fewer words. <laughs> That's great. But, but I meet my deadlines. So um, yeah, she says, hopefully, um, oh, I'm sure a little bit tight this year. Um, you know, COVID, um, my husband retired, so he's been home. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, so there have been things that have made it more, um, I'm a little behind this year, so it's been a little tighter. But as I said, uh, it's due February 1st, and I'm finishing it today. It's January 5th. I'll finish it today or tomorrow. So it just means I'll have less time to edit. But um, uh, it should be fine. Um, and, you know, once again, a lot of my passing friends say, oh, that's crazy. You spend like four months planning beforehand and I can go straight into the book. Like, yes. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to the editing, I have less work to do. I have, I'm looking for, I'm adding in a lot of it is research where I'll read a new book and realize, oh, well that scene doesn't work. I need to fix that scene. So it's, it's more minor structural things. Um, and, looking for, and obviously the, you know, cutting words and, you know, tightening it up and looking for repetition, all the little things we do. But my editing process is really pretty fast because I've, I already, my structure is fine. My character development is on target. So it's, it's the little stuff. So for me, editing is really fast. So a pantser will spend more, you know, little to no time on the pre-writing, but we'll spend a lot more time on the rewriting. So it just depends on where you want to spend your time. And I, I've chosen to spend it pre-writing rather than rewriting. And for other people like, no, the pre-writing seems like a waste of time, but I'm willing to, to do a major rewrite. So it depends on what works for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting to hear what you're calling the free writing and that planning that you do as a pantser. I do a lot of that. It just happens within the framework of the manuscript. So I'm deleting, I'm deleting, but I'm getting to know my characters in that process. And I'm figuring out their history and what's pertinent to the story I'm telling. So we share so much in common, plotters and pantsers. It's just the way we go about it is very different. And I love your point that we are wired differently and we need to figure out what works as writers for us. And, and I've, I've talked to a lot of writers who um, tried outlining and hated it and then started writing by the seat of the pants and loved it. I've talked to others who felt like um, that only good, only, the only good writers wrote organically, organically, where it just flowed out of them. And so they tried doing that and they ended up with a mess and they wrote themselves into a hole. And then they tried an outline like, oh, wow, this works. But I was told we weren't supposed to write that way. <laughs> and they feel guilty because they're not being organic. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no there's something to be said for uh, using the mind the way that God created it and <laughs> letting it work for you. In the and, and that's what's so fast. You know, once again, I come from a scientific background. Um, and in general, if you do certain, like in pharmacy, okay, if you give a certain medication, it will have certain effects. It will have certain side, we call side effects, but actually they're very logical effects based on the pharmacology of the medication. So if you give a certain medication, certain things happen and you expect them to happen. Very logical. And even a pharmacy career is very logical. If you, if you basically do all the right things and you don't get your nose dirty and you, and you're going to, your career is going to go up, up, up and up. 
so there's a logic to it. And then I get to writing and like, well, some of the best novels I've ever read were written by the sea of the pants. And some of the best novels I've ever read were written with intricate, intricate outlines. <laughs> and, and you may have the best book that's ever written and never be able to get another publishing contract. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> it's not logical. Exactly. Where's the logic? <laughs> the logic. And for me, actually, that's very good because I tend to be, I like to control and I like to have everything in line. I like my routines. So for something like this that throws me for a loop all the time, it's actually good and reminds me that I'm not in control and God is in control. (laughs) It is good. It is good. It's very humbling in a good way. Exactly. Well, I'm excited for this book to see uh, how readers react to it. And uh, to see where it goes, it, it just, as I said, I have thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It's uh, from Ravel, and it releases February 2nd. February 2nd, yes. Okay. And tell me where, uh, where can readers and writers find you online? It's on my website is sarahsunden.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Pinterest, um, under my name. So I'm pretty easy, I'm pretty easy to find. There aren't too many Sarah Sundans. So and then this for all the writer stuff. So I'm pretty easy to find. And I will include all of that information in the episode notes. So re, uh, listeners can find it there. And Writers can find you in February at the West Coast Christian Writers Conference yes. online. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the conference and your role in the conference. Writing is not all you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, all those spreadsheets that I grew love with my writing, I've now applied them to a new thing. Um, my friends now call me the spreadsheet queen, uh, which is really funny because my mother always talked about how disorganized and I was. I was a very disorganized child. I never keep my room clean. And now I have everything my little spreadsheets. Anyway, I serve, this year I'm serving as co-director of the conference and my, my main fake focus is on the programming. I was a program director last year. So I'm selecting our faculty, selecting workshops and circle leaders and um, really looking at what do our readers, what do our writers need from us? And it was fun to work with the board and talking about our writing community because we really have, we foster at West Coast, we really foster a community for our writers, not just we hold a conference, see you by, um, but let's build a community with our writers. Um, but like, what do we need? What do we need from, for our writers? What do our writers want? And, you know, trying to focus um, on the writing craft, both fiction writers and nonfiction writers, also looking at publicity and then looking at the writing life and, you know, trying to have a balance between those topics. And I'm so excited about our faculty. We have, I mean, we are really careful to handpick faculty, not just because they're big names, but because they are known as good teachers and because they have a heart for, for really um, mentoring writers. So these are people we, we have hand selected these people. They're not going to be just in the workshop. See you bye. Um, but they really care about writers and um, we, we love our faculty and the workshop topics. I'm just, uh, I'm starting the workshops. They're, they're due next week and they're starting to come in now. I'm looking at these workshops going, ah, they're so good. Their people are going to be so excited about them. So, and we are doing an online conference this year. So the beauty of it, if you go in an in-person conference, you can only go to X many workshops. Maybe you buy the recordings, but this, you, we've got six weeks where you can spread out and watch those workshops. So I think it's going to be a really great experience. 
And that is 55 plus workshops, is it not? <laughs> yes, I think it's 57. Yeah, you know, because you put them all on the website. <laughs> I know. It's, it is going to be an amazing conference. And what you and Susie have done uh, in terms of planning and the board, it's just been incredible. So I will also include information about the conference, which is February, yeah. I think, 24th through 27th. 25th through 27th. 25th through 27th. Uh, so we'll all include information about that in the episode notes too for writers who are interested. So Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, you. you are an incredible teacher. I learned a lot just in this discussion and conversation with you. And uh, I know that the writers who have been mentored by you and sat under your teaching have learned so much too. And your writing is amazing. So um, best wishes on this book. And uh, just thank you so much for your heart for writers and for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. Welcome. Thank you for listening to Words with Writers. For show notes, links, and resources for writers, go to wordsforwriters.net.